0: podcast is part of the sports social podcast network.
1: Old everlasting. That is what they called Tom Walker. Sounds like a country and western singer or a I don't know, very optimistic man. He was known as that because of how long he batted. He didn't bowl much, but with one ball he helped change cricket forever. Welcome to Double Century. This week is about the biggest law change in cricket. And without it, this podcast would not exist. Your signed Glen Chapel trading card would be worthless. And Gautam Gambia would be even more overlooked. Had cricket stayed as an underarm sport, it wouldn't be this game. It would be like a slightly harder version of croquet. And it would have been something that you did in private gardens on a Sunday afternoon without overarm bowling. Cricket would be like snuff, or something that Tatler magazine covers would have on them, or that really posh girl from your college, she'd be trying to explain it to you an hour into your first shrooms. Instead, it's a massive worldwide business with close to a billion fans, and that all started with a professional being shadow banned, a woman with large dresses, and a man storming off onto a horse. I mean, kind of? Historian David Frith has long debated that the birth of cricket wasn't Hambledon, but all he really does is picks another old club. I'd argue that it's not really a club game, it started on the streets. But Hambledon is well known as the cradle of cricket. But what it should be, I think, is the cradle of the gentleman's game. Kids were playing cricket all over the UK before anyone had heard of Hambledon. But Hambledon is where cricket starts being narrated. The kids didn't write books about how they started cricket. Hambledon did. It was formed sometime around 1760. It is in rural Hampshire, south of London. And despite the fact it wasn't in London, the noblemen and country gentry flocked to it. They charged spectators to come in. Everyone had a bet. Lords didn't even exist at this point. Tom Walker was a pro at Hambledon. His nickname was Old Everlasting. He was a batsman who could bat as the first man in, and often, last man out. They say he once faced 107 balls from one bowler, and he scored a single. John Nyron wrote in The Young Cricketer's Tutor that Walker was a hard, ungainly scrag of mutton frame, weird, apple-john face, long spider legs, as thick at the ankles as they were at the hips, the driest and most rigid-limbed chap. His skin was like the rind of an old oak. And as sapless, he moved like rude machinery of a steam engine in the infancy of construction, and when he ran, every member seemed ready to fly into the four winds. I mean, that's some description. Walker did something even more amazing than move like rude machinery or score one from 107 balls. He made an attempt to introduce a new form of bowling, or throwing, into proper cricket in 1788. There is a school of belief that outside the Earl of Winchelsea's entourage and Hambledon's other elite, in the streets and parks, kids and adults had been doing it for years. But their games were never reported on unless someone died or used a dog as a player. At Hambledon, such disgusting bowling would never be allowed, and instantly Walker was called for a no-ball, and told by the Council of Hambledon Club that it was considered foul play batsmen were on this committee, batsmen of nobility and pedigree. Walker's rudimentary round arm was fast and scary, and no one wanted to face it. So they told him not to do it. And although Walker was well known enough that he was someone who could be reported on, his lowly status as a professional meant that it was easy to force him into giving up this ball. By bowling that way, he was putting his earnings in danger, so he just never did it again. Well, the crowd's gone wild. The mobile phones are on, the lights are on, will this be the hat-trick? Let's see. Oh, man! He's got a hat-trick! Malinga, you beauty! You've got a hat-trick! What brilliant bowling by the Sri Lankan captain. Well, he's turned it around, and what a magnificent delivery. Oh, what a moment, what a moment. And Lasik Malinga could smile.
0: Brilliant, I mean... First ball. He had no clue whatsoever. The angle of the bat suggested that he had missed the ball when it was in its full flat. Yeah, that's him. Number 99. no more. Della shot the pad. They're asking the question. Four in four. Too good to be true. It's too
1: good to be true. Four in four Volazy malinga New Zealand now
0: 15 for four. Ross Dela. Gets to by a fuller length ball and plumb in front of the stumps. A dead duck. Fantastic, fabulous piece of bowling. Accuracy, sideways movement. And four of four. Lasset Malinga is unstoppable. Fifteen. Football.
1: We know all about this because of John Nyron's book, A Young Cricketer's Tutor. I have a copy. Not much of a copy. I carried it around the World Cup one time. Never actually got around to reading it and it got ruined more than it already was. Many of cricket's earliest stories are from this book, and it's an incredible piece of cricket history. And while many of the stories are probably not first-hand, and, to be honest, many are plagiarised from other sources, the fact that this book exists gives us so much information about the early game. For instance, this is on how the bat-size law came in. Several years since, I do not recollect the precise date. A player named White of Rygate, brought a bat to a match, which, being the width of the stumps, effectively defended his wicket from the bowler, and, in consequence, a law was passed limiting the future width of the bats to four and one quarter inches. Another law was decreed that the ball should not weigh less than five and a half ounces or more than five and three quarter ounces. The book itself is little more than a hundred pages but a bit like the ashes urn, size isn't everything. Tom Walker kept playing as a batsman and a lob baller, literally lobbing the ball up high. People were still doing that in first-class cricket up until World War I. Almost 20 years after the round arm incident, he played in a match where John Willis Esquire was playing. Willis had a sister named Christiana who loved playing cricket. She would help her brother. According to an article from her son, almost 100 years later, in 1907, it was my mother's skill in throwing the ball to him for practice in the bar at Tonford. Later, he trained a dog to fetch the ball, and there was a saying that Willis, his sister, and his dog could beat any 11 in England. So, if you have ever heard the story that a woman invented overarm bowling because of big dresses, and by big dresses, I mean, think those big toilet roll holders or the big hoop creations with wood that sort of jut out sideways. Well, this is where that story comes from. The weird thing is, her son never actually mentioned the dresses. That was added later. And the story becomes part of cricket's folklore. But the dresses story is definitely not true. John Major's book discredits it. And I spoke to a fashion historian for my book, An English women didn't wear hooped crinoline dresses in that time. That doesn't mean Christiana didn't hurl the ball back in a way that inspired her brother. But the only recording of this is from her son, almost 100 years later. So, quite obviously, he wasn't there. But it is worth talking about the kind of family that the Willises were. They weren't a normal family. They were elites, Illuminati, one you know, that kind of deal. John Willis played in both of the first two gentlemen versus players games. He was an OG. Original gentleman. But John Willis had bowled this way, this round arm style, in many smaller games, bringing it out often in a 15 year period. Outside of major cricket, round arm bowling wasn't completely outlawed. The laws were still filtering through the game. But he wasn't always invited to play because people knew that he did bowl this way. In 1822, he played for Kent against the MCC. He bowled one of his round arm balls, was called for a no ball for throwing the first to ever be called for chucking, and then he left the field, got on a horse, and rode into the sunset, never to play cricket again. Now, how much of that is true, I don't know, but it's a fantastic story, and it was his final first-class game. Well, this has appeared from nowhere. This guy's bowled a lot of overs in Australia, and all of a sudden, from nowhere, he's now being called for bowling no balls. Well, I hope he's not calling him for throwing. He seems to be walking straight down, the, and he calls him very late, so I'm sure he's calling him for throwing. I hope it's not, but I've got a terrible gut feeling. I tell you, Bill, having looked at that, there is absolutely no doubt that he's called him for uh, throwing. Right? So umpire here says that is a no ball. So what he's saying is that he bent, he had his arm bent, and he straightened it. The bowling of John Willis, possibly Christiana Willis, and definitely Tom Walker, was very different. Underarm bowling was... Kind of rubbish. Okay to your three-year-old nephew, but not really a demanding athletic endeavour that would captivate millions of people like Wes Hall in mid So Willis used this skill honed with his sister to try bowling round arm in high-profile matches. And although he was the main proponent, others bowled as well. If you're imagining some kind of Richard Hadley mustache chap with grace coming in, that wasn't the case the early round-arm bowlers came around the wicket and sort of hurled the ball, I could only assume in a style like a drunk Lassif Malinga. There was a huge group of people, prominent people, that didn't want round-arm bowling at all, and later on they would also go on to fight over-arm bowling. William Ward was the man who bought Lords off Thomas Lord, because Thomas Lord was actually going to put a property development on it. Ward, and many of the other haters thought that overarm bowling or round arm bowling would ruin the game. It would ruin batsmen, it would cause injury, it was throwing, it was horrid, it was repugnant.
0: While throwing, we bend our elbow and then we straighten it when releasing the ball. This phenomena is not allowed while bowling. So bending the elbow and straightening while releasing the ball is illegal. During the bowling action, once the arm reaches the shoulder level, If the elbow is bent, as shown in the video, then it should not be straightened before releasing the ball. If the elbow is bent at the shoulder level, then releasing the ball with the same bend is allowed. However, many biomechanic and video-based three-dimensional analysis conducted between period 1990 to 2003 revealed that most of the ballers have some degree of elbow extension. Most of the ballers' data ranged between 10 to 15 degrees. After thorough analysis, ICC decided to allow 15 degree of elbow extension, Muttaya Muraledharan's bowling action. His action was repeatedly called no ball by few umpires. In those days, 15 degree allowance was not there in place and also he had some deformity in his hand which gave the illusion of chucking.
1: It certainly was changing the game. Look at a picture of the original cricket bats. They're really hockey sticks because that is what you need you for hitting a ball along the ground. As the ball was lifted off the surface, bats evolved with it, the same way that bats have evolved today. There is a reason now that bats are bigger and stronger because people need to hit the ball further and further. If you're blocking out a draw, you don't necessarily need the strongest, biggest, driest piece of wood. If you have to buy your own bats, you don't want a bat that's going to break every couple of games. Cricket has evolved and bats have evolved with them. So at this point, if you had a bat, chances are it was incredibly heavy because you didn't need a light bat because you didn't have to worry about the short ball so much, nor were you going to be playing a reverse sweep. And in those days, bat speed wasn't really a thing. So batsmen would have huge, heavy bats and they would use these heavy bats well into a very old age. round bowling would make it a game for younger, more athletic people. And during this period, cricket pads weren't that common. Nicholas Felix and Fuller Pilch wore them. But there were very bad injuries in 1836 and 1841 with batsmen having their leg broken from facing round-arm balls without pads. There was even one incredible story, that a bowler had bowled so quickly that his wicket keeper had missed the ball and the ball had gone through the jacket that was being used as a long stop and killed a dog. The message was clear, round-arm bowling broke legs and killed dogs. The old men were not happy. Cricket was splitting into two factions at this time, and it obviously wouldn't be the only sport that would do that. Rugby was rugby until it became league and union. There was a sporting magazine piece written by Mr. G.T. Knight and Mr. Dennison stating the cases of both sides of the argument. Mr. Knight was a fan and practitioner of the overarm, said a truth that still haunts cricket to this day. It is universally admitted that batting dominates bowling to an extent detrimental to the game. Mr. Dennison was against it. His main three reasons were involving that it was throwing, that it could be dangerous, and this. The new style is fatal to all scientific play, putting a premium on chance hits and placing scientific defense at a discount. Others thought round-arm bowling would result in rough, coarse horseplay, which honestly sounds fun. Mr. G.T. Knight was actually George Knight, born to Edward Knight. Edward Knight was born to Edward Austen, Jane Austen's brother. Jane Austen's nephew George was a round-arm bowler. He was also the proponent of the experimental cricket matches to win over the MCC and people like William Ward to the benefits of round-arm bowling. The games were between Sussex and an All-England eleven. Sussex had two bowlers who were following the current cricket law where you couldn't raise your arm as high as your elbow. They beat England easily in the first two matches. For the third, this is a letter written by some of the players from the All England 11. We, the underside, do agree that we will not play the third match between All England and Sussex, which is intended to be played at Brighton in July or August, unless the Sussex bowlers bowl fair, that is, abstain from throwing the underarm and undermanned England side won that third game. It was entirely possible that that match was fixed so they could maintain some face. In 1835, the MCC, who were now fully in charge of the laws of cricket, changed the law too. the ball must be bowled, and if it is to be thrown or jerked, or if the hand is above the shoulder in the delivery, the umpire must call no ball. It wouldn't slow down the evolution. Bowlers kept raising their arms higher and higher, and this also changed how batsmen played. Still, the powers that ran cricket fought evolution. Overarm bowling, as it is practiced today, was not legalized until 1864, only 13 years before the first ever test. Some historians have disagreed with me that this is the most important law change to cricket. A few think it was inevitable, a natural evolution but there were powerful people who were fighting against it. And this took 70 years for cricket to finally change. Many things could have happened in that time. There could have been, as I said earlier, a rugby-type split. Another sport could have taken stranglehold, or cricket could have continued as this underarm game and never really got outside of England. It is thanks to overarm bowling and those who fought for it that cricket became what we love today. They're going to bowl an underarm. never believed it. And that's a disappointing finish. Disappointed Brian McKechnie, the crowd boom. And it's all over. Well, that's disappointing. But very disappointed, Bruce Edgar. What John Willis did was actually make the game of cricket the sport that we love. Because underarm bowling is largely nonsense, even more so than off spin. And back then, Cricket was only slightly more interesting than croquet. If it had stayed as underarm only, it would have ended up entirely as a sport of the English elite. The best athletes would have gone to other sports. It would barely be a sport at all. More an eccentric novelty. A garden game for weddings at country estates. Instead, because of people like Tom, Christiana, Edward and John, it's a game that's been lasting ever since. You have been listening to Double Century. I'm Jared Kimber, and a few years ago I wrote a book called Test Cricket, The Unauthorised Biography. Many of the stories that I tell in this podcast can be found there. This episode was written by me. Nick McCorriston produced it, and it was fact-checked by Bertie Moores and Abhishek Mukherjee. Double Century is brought to you by the good folk who support us at Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. If you can spare any money, please help out. Also, if you could rate, review, and share this podcast, it all really helps us. This is the first season. We'd like to do a second season, so please support us in any way you can. Thank you very much. Sports Social Podcast Network.